Well, if you have a Bible tonight, I would certainly invite you to open it to Acts chapter 1. Um, if you are new tonight or it's your first time on a Wednesday night in a long time, one of the things that we do is we uh, take our Bible reading plan that we're doing as a church. And if you're not sure what that is or how to get connected with that, there are copies of the Bible reading plan on the table as you leave tonight. So grab one of those. Um, we are reading together this year through the New Testament, kind of taking our time, uh, processing through uh, the scriptures in the New Testament. And then on Wednesday nights, uh, we kind of have a little opportunity to investigate some of what we've read in the previous week and just kind of spend some time together uh, soaking up God's word and uh, being challenged by uh, his truth. And so if you're new to that, that's what that looks like. So if you're wondering why we are randomly in Acts chapter one, it's because we just finished the Gospel of Luke, and now we have started into Acts, and we are looking at uh, the early church and the early days of those disciples who are now without Jesus physically present in their lives. So Acts chapter 1, a little obscure uh, passage of Scripture tonight. I'll be honest with you, when I first got here, I preached pretty extensively uh, through Acts chapter 1 through 10. And so when this week was coming up, I was a little nervous because I kept thinking, hey, will they notice if I just do one again? Probably not. Um, so that's, so I, that was an option. Or is there something in there that we have not really discussed, even though we looked at it both on Sundays and Wednesdays during that 10-week period? And so I was investigating a little bit of that. I can't speak for next week yet. It may be something you have heard before. Uh, but for this week, there's a, there, there's a small portion of Scripture that stands out in Acts chapter 1 that probably when you're reading it, because there's such excitement before and such excitement after, you might be like me and just kind of breeze over this part and uh, not really kind of see what's happening and why it's significant for us today. And so I want to look at um, that passage of Scripture in uh, Acts chapter 1 this evening. Now, you may not know this and you may not care about this, but for those of you who don't or those of you who don't care, uh, last night at about 11 o'clock, LeBron James became the all-time leading scorer in the history of the NBA. So for those of you who have been uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fans your entire life because he was the greatest scorer you've ever seen, he has now been surpassed uh, by LeBron James. Now, I'm regretting a little bit right now and, and earlier this afternoon that I stayed up to watch that happen because I'm a little sleepy right now. But I thought to myself, uh, this is a record that Jabbar held for nearly 40 years, and most people thought this record would never, ever be broken. This was considered in sports one of the unbreakable records. And so in my lifetime, I may never see it broken, and so this was an opportunity to stay up a little late and see what happened with LeBron as he became the leading scorer forever, at least in my opinion, in NBA history. Now, I will, I will always remember this record being broken. I will always remember this particular accomplishment of LeBron. But you know what I oftentimes don't think about? I don't think about what it took for him to get there, right? I don't think about all those hours, all those years, all those training sessions, all those workouts. I don't think about that. What I think about is that he has broken a record that was considered to be unbreakable. Now, for me, I kind of just process this like, like this. I typically think about the mountaintop moments for people without thinking about what it took to get them to the top right? It's the top parts that we see. It's the peak moments. It's the pinnacle of the achievement without knowing all that was there to get them there. We remember all the success, but do we remember that there's more to the story than just that? Matter of fact, I found a couple of examples of this that I thought were interesting. Anybody know who George Steinbrenner was? Who was he? Owner of the Yankees, right? For years and years and years, he is famously known as that owner of that franchise for nearly 40 years. Now, what you may not know about George was that he owned a small basketball team before he ever owned the New York Yankees. Anybody know the name of that basketball team? The Cleveland Pipers. I didn't know this. I just read about it. So don't think that I'm like an expert on George Steinbrenner by any means. He may have owned other uh, franchises as well. I don't know. But uh, he, he owned the Cleveland Pipers. This was back in the 60s before he owned the Yankees. Now, two years after buying the team, here's what you also don't know about. He bankrupted it and the team no longer exists. All right. So obviously, George did not do very good. 
But here's what we don't know. We don't know that about George Steinbrenner. What we know is that George brought six World Series titles to the Yankees and still to this day as known, is known as one of the most profitable franchises in Major League Baseball history, right? If you think baseball, MLB, if you were to poll the country, I bet over 60% of them, the first team they would think of is the Yankees. This is George's, or part of it, legacy. Venus and Serena Williams, you ever heard of them? Yeah, what did they do? What are they famous for? Tennis, right? Obviously. Uh, they are incredible tennis players. Between the two, they won 122 tennis titles, 30 of those being major championships. Now, we remember a lot of those majors, or at least if you're a tennis fan, you remember them. I remember several of them. I'm a huge tennis fan, and even more so, anytime an American can win a major, which, by the way, on the male side, very rarely happens, but on the female side, we always had Serena and Venus Williams. And so I remember so much of what they did. I remember those mountaintop moments. What I don't realize is that they were hitting tennis balls at 6 a.m. from the ages of 7 and 8. As a matter of fact, the New York Times did an article about the Williams family, and here's how they described their lives. Get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, go to the tennis court before school, go to school, then after school, back to the tennis court, and then they went to bed. That was the story of the Williams sisters' lives. Here's what we think about. We think about the major championships. We don't think about oftentimes what it took for them to get there. Michael Jordan, right? Everybody is familiar with MJ. Even if you don't care about him or like him or think whatever you think, everybody knows about Michael Jordan. He's remembered for six rings, six finals MVPs, defensive players of the year, league MVPs, scoring titles, and being known maybe not as much anymore today, as the best basketball player who has ever lived. Now, you can have that debate with whoever you want to, but now that LeBron is the all-time leading scorer, I think some got to at least give him a little bit of props for what the man's accomplished. But most people still hold Michael Jordan to be the best basketball player ever. He had unbelievable physical gifts. But his longtime coach, Phil Jackson, he wrote this about Michael Jordan. He said it was hard work that made him a legend. When Jordan first entered the league, his jump shot wasn't good enough. He spent his off-seasons taking hundreds of jumpers a day until it was perfect. As a matter of fact, the piece in NBA.com by Phil Jackson continued, and here's what Phil Jackson said. He said that Jordan's defining characteristic wasn't his talent, but having the humility to know he had to work constantly to be the best. What do we remember? We remember the fadeaways, right? We remember the flying across and shooting the jumper. We remember the uh, free throw line jump dunks, right? We remember all those things. You know what we don't think about? All the work that he put in to get to those moments. Tom Brady. There's a familiar name, right, in the news right now. Tom Brady, if you didn't know this, he's won more Super Bowls than any franchise. Steelers have six. Patriots have six, which, by the way, we're all with Tom Brady. Tom Brady has seven. Now, we think about those wins, but what we don't think about are all the off-season workouts, film sessions, practices, body preparation, sheer dedication to the game. You say, Dave, why are you telling us all this? Here's why. There's more to the story. We see those mountaintop moments. Do we know what it took to get there? Now you say, Danny, okay, great businessman, incredible sports athletes. All right, that's great for them. What does this have to do with me? This is not just true in business. This is not just true in sports. This is true with the church. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what we discover in Acts chapter 1. Here's what we think about at the end of Luke. We think about the death of Jesus, right? His burial and eventual resurrection. We think about him walking around and spending time with his disciples and encouraging them for the road that is ahead. We think about Pentecost, right? We think about Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit falling down. We think about 3,000 people being saved and the birth of the church. That's what we think about. How often 
do we think about the preparation of those early followers before the Spirit ever came? Do we think about what they did as they waited for God's leadership? You say, Danny, what do you mean? There's more to the story. In fact, I was reading this this past week, and it hit me personally a little heavier because I really thought about our church, thought about our community. I thought about what God's doing here and how He's moving and how He's blessing. I thought about His leadership in our lives and in the life of our church. And I thought about the difficult decisions that we have ahead, whether it be expansions or whether it be new ministries to fund or whether it be additional worship services because we all can't fit in that building anymore. Whatever the case may be, I'm processing through this and I'm thinking to myself, these mountaintop moments are great. We love when everything is where we think it ought to be. But what about all the preparation that God's putting us through right now as he's preparing us for something that we may not have any idea is about to happen. Listen, they knew the Spirit would come. They didn't know when, but I guarantee you this. They had no idea that in one moment, 3,000 people would be added to the church. You say, Danny, how did they handle that? I have no idea. You say, Danny, we have 300 show up on Sunday, and we start thinking, man, we don't have enough pews. Man, there's people walking out because there's nowhere to sit. Could you imagine if 300 this Sunday turned into 3,000? What in the world would we do with 3,000 people? Here's what I bet you would agree with me on. We have no idea what we would do with 3,000 people. But can I tell you something that's significant about the early church? They didn't bat an eye when 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. You want to know why? Because they've been preparing in moments that we may not see, we may forget, we may overlook because we see the mountaintop moments, they were being prepared for what God was about to unleash on the world. And I thought about myself. I thought, is He looking to reach this community and world through us? I thought about, is God wanting to do awesome things right here? What might need to happen in our lives as we begin to prepare for his leadership moving forward? And then, boom, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And God showed me some things about the early church that I think are instrumental for our lives today as we walk after Jesus. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, let me show you the first one. I want you to notice first their obedience through worship. Their obedience through worship. Look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to spend some time there. Starting in verse number 12. Let's look at a couple of verses. It says, Then they, talking about the early disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, not the bad one, by the way, Judas the son of James. Can you imagine, by the way, always being the other Judas? Like that can't, I just think I would have changed my name some point in time, right? They're, by the way, they're always changing names. Like why couldn't they change it? Anyway, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his Brothers, you say, Danny, what do you see from this? I see their obedience through worship. What do you mean? They did what Jesus told them to do. Now, I know this is groundbreaking information, right? I know that this is one of those moments where the light bulb is finally going. Oh, Jesus said something and they did it, right? You say, Danny, that's not very groundbreaking. That's not very original. I agree. Jesus wants us to be obedient through worship. You say, how? He wants us to do what He told us to do. If you go back to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, here's what you read about Jesus. It says, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So guess what they're doing? By verse 12 in Acts chapter 1, which is not very far, by the way, from verses 4 and 5. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit just like Jesus said. 
They've walked back across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem. Probably the same room, by the way, where they're all huddled up in Luke chapter 24 and they're terrified for their lives when the resurrected Jesus knocks on the door. Somebody answers and goes, boom, shuts it in his face. Hey, y'all, hey, hey, it's Jesus. And they're like, no, Jesus is dead. Can't be Jesus. And then he comes through the wall, right? This is probably where they are. By the way, in that moment, I don't think I have any questions anymore. I think in that moment I go, yes, Jesus, what do you want me to do, right? They're probably in this room. If not, they're probably in the upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, where they spent time together with the Last Supper as he already told them what would happen during his death. If they're not there, they're possibly at uh, John Mark's mother's house, which is where we find them in Acts chapter 12 as they're praying once again for the Spirit to move. Nonetheless, I don't care where they are. It's not about where they are, but it is what they are doing. They are doing what Jesus told them to do. Now, they didn't know when the Spirit would come, but they knew the Spirit was coming. They weren't sure when that would be, but God certainly did. He knew that the Spirit would come at the Feast of Weeks, or what we refer to now as the Day of Pentecost. This is about ten days after this moment that we read about in Acts chapter 1. Now, the Feast of Weeks, it's a holiday where Jews from all over the world would gather in Jerusalem to make an offering to God. During the time of harvest, they would bring their first fruits to God. Now, this is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls and people from all over the world are hearing Jesus proclaimed in their own language. Why does he need so many languages? Because it is such a massive holiday. There are so many people from all across the world. They are celebrating the, the, the Feast of of weeks, and he, Jesus is proclaiming himself to them in their own language. Now, there's no coincidence that God would be harvesting his first fruits for the birth of the church that will be happening in Acts chapter 2. All the apostles are gathered together, along with other disciples of Jesus. We learn in the next verse uh, that this is 120 is the count. Several women, now I'm not sure why they're, they are designated specifically or separately from the other disciples, could be highlighted to let people know how involved women were in the early ministry of the church. Nonetheless, the list of women is highlighted by, highlighted by Mary, Jesus's mother. Now, the apostles, I read this list, and I'm thinking, man, these guys are giants in the faith, right? Like, I'm reading about these guys, and I'm like, these are some of our greatest heroes. But what I also notice is as we reflect on their lives, they're not perfect people. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, Peter's there. Well, we remember Peter just a few chapters before this moment, right? He was found denying Jesus not once, not twice, but three different times. Guess who else is there? John and James. You say, Danny, what's wrong with them? I don't know if you remember their overly aggressive attitudes, but their nicknames were the Sons of Thunder. You say, Danny, did that have to be bad? No. Why do you think it was? I don't know if you remember, but there was a moment in, in Mark chapter 10 where James and John came to Jesus and said, we want to be better than everybody else. Will you let one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on your left so that we can rule with you above everybody else, right? This is the overly aggressive nature of John and James. What about Philip? He's there. You say, Danny, what's wrong with him? He was always more concerned with facts and figures than he was with Jesus' actual ability. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Well, I don't know if you remember in John chapter 6 when Jesus was going to take a few fish and a few loaves and he was going to feed thousands of people until Philip came up and said, I don't think we can do that, Jesus. I counted what that is. These people here, this, is, this ain't going to work. And Jesus said, I'm about to blow your mind. Thomas is there. You say, Danny, what's the issue with Thomas? Well, Thomas has a nickname that probably you all know. He was referred to as Doubting Thomas. He needed more and more proof so that he could believe in Jesus. The brothers of Jesus are there. His mother as well. They're highlighted in this group. Now, I think this is significant for a couple of reasons. Once, one is that their impact in the early church as we move forward is incredible. But I think there's another reason. It comes in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Let me read it to you. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is his family who thought he was crazy. 
rest of the apostles, other names that we read about, all abandoned Jesus at the time of his greatest need. You say, Danny, why are you pointing all of this out? Though we think of the early followers of Jesus as heroes, can I tell you something? They needed Jesus just as much as we need Jesus today. They needed the power of the Spirit just as much as we need the power of the Holy Spirit today, which is why what they're doing is so important. It says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now just let that process for a moment. Oh, how much Jesus' followers, how much the church today needs to be devoting themselves to prayer. As a matter of fact, Luke also mentions at the end of his gospel that they were continually in the temple blessing God. Here's what we discover from these guys. We find them praising in the temple and praying in their homes. Matter of fact, Luke uses the word for together, which implies more than just simply being in the same room. It means they were worshiping with the same mind. They were worshiping with the same purpose. They were seeking the same things. And when Luke wrote devoting and continually, he is stressing the amount and the consistency of their time in worship to the Lord. Is this how God finds us today? Does he still find his people being obedient through worship, following his every step every day? Are we still seeking him now like they were seeking him then? You say, Danny, why is this important? I don't know if you remember what's about to happen in Acts chapter 2, but the entire world will be turned upside down through this ragtag group of people all up in this upper room. You know what they needed? They needed Jesus. You know what we need? We need Jesus. Are we seeking Him? Wow, why'd y'all let me spend so much time there? Let me show you the second thing. Not just their obedience through worship, but I want to show you their observance of the Word. I love this moment. Peter, by the way, if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up. Now, I don't know if you remember, but the last time Peter was really highlighted, he wasn't standing up. I mean, he was actually literally standing by a fire, but he was not the one who was voicing what needed to be voiced. Instead, he's denying Jesus. He's hiding in a back corner. He wants nothing to do with the gospel. But in those days, Peter stood up. By the way, can I just take a moment here? I can't tell you the amount of stories that I could tell you about myself that were in those other days when I didn't want to stand up for Jesus. But I am so thankful to the Lord that at some point in time, He changed my life forever, and I ain't got to worry about those other days anymore, because in these days, Danny can stand for Jesus. Is that true of you? This is where we find Peter in these moments. In those days, Peter stood up. Among the brothers, this is the company of persons, uh, was about 120. Now, I don't know that there's a real significance to the number 120. You can read all kinds of things about that from people who are really interested in numbers. But one thing that is fascinating about the number 120 is that according to Jewish law, 120 men was the requirement for a group to form its own community, its own council. Therefore, the early church had enough members to form their own group. Also, you ever wondered when you thought about these 120 who was present in the group? You say, Danny, what do you mean? We read about the disciples. We read about the brothers. We read about the mother Jesus, the other women that we could probably guess based on the resurrection and the tomb when they ran to see that Jesus wasn't there. But what about some of the other characters in the Gospels? Like, for instance, is blind Bartimaeus in that group of 120 who couldn't see, but now he could? Is the blind man there that when the Pharisees came and said, hey man, what happened to you? Who is this guy? He said, I don't know who this guy is, but I can tell you right now, I couldn't see, and now I can. And this guy did it, right? Is that guy there in this room with them? Is Nicodemus Nicodemus there? Did he forsake all of his pharisaical ways? Did he say goodbye to an old Jewish broken law system and now he's in the upper room standing with Peter? Is Zacchaeus there? 
You know that wee little man that was up in the tree? Jesus said, come on down, I want to come to your house. And he gave everything he ever took times a million because Jesus changed his life forever. Man, if he was willing to do that then, I can't imagine him not being there with this group. What about Lazarus? Remember him? He died. And Jesus showed up after he was rotting and stinking and brought his body back to life. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus brings me back to life from the dead, I'm probably in that upper upper room with those 120 people. I don't know who's there. I don't know why 120 is important, but there they are. All together, Peter among them stood up and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now here's what Peter's doing. He's reminding those early followers that what Judas did in betraying Jesus had to happen. It was foretold by God that someone would betray Christ. Judas was that guy. Now, this shouldn't have been a surprise to the disciples. You say, Danny, why? Because Peter uses the Bible to guide their next step. They're not surprised by what happened. Why? Because the Bible had already informed them of what was going to take place and how they needed to follow God in the future. By the way, side note here. This book still does that today. For followers of Jesus who will take time in it and seek after His ways, it will show you what you need to do if you will do it. Peter goes, you know what? I don't have to guess about any of this. How about I just use the Bible in order to guide us on what we need to do next? You say, Danny, what do you mean he uses the Bible? Well, it doesn't look like our Bible, right? The New Testament, by the way, for those of you who maybe think Peter was holding that in his hand at this time, it doesn't exist yet. So what does he do? He quotes the mouth of David, the only scriptures that he knows. He quotes from Psalm 41, thinking about the death of Jesus. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He's thinking about Psalm 69. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. He's thinking about Psalm 109. May his days be few. May another take his office. Listen, he didn't just have to think about the words of David. Jesus had already told them this multiple times. Matter of fact, we just read about it in Luke chapter 22. They're sitting around the table. And Jesus goes, one of you that's eating bread with me is going to betray me. And you know what they did? They all started looking around going, is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Is it me? Oh, it won't be me. It's got to be you, right? This should be no surprise to them. Now, though it was known that Judas would betray Jesus, it doesn't mean that Judas had no choice. I read this this week. This is by John Stott. Found it interesting. He wrote that some people express their sympathy for Judas. In other words, they feel sorry for him. Why? Because his role was predicted and therefore it is thought foreordained. But this is not so. In fact, Calvin himself, now if you don't know Calvin, he's the guy who emphasized the the sovereignty of God who is famously known now for a doctrine called Calvinism where people have no free will, but God chooses what happens to you. Very extreme opinion. Not that there's no truth in it. It just goes extremely to one side. Calvin himself, for all his emphasis on the sovereignty of God, wrote, Judas may not be excused on the ground that what befell him was prophesied, since he fell away, not through the compulsion of the prophecy, but through the wickedness of his own heart. You say, Danny, what do you mean? God didn't make Judas be wicked. We're all wicked from the moment we are born into this world. It wasn't the Bible that forced Judas to betray Jesus. It was the wickedness of his own heart. In fact, this is why Luke would give us a quick side note. If you keep reading Acts chapter 1, verse 18, look at this. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, I'm not looking for a, a deep theological discussion about the death of Judas, but there are differences in Matthew's account of Judas's death versus Luke's account that's written about here in Acts chapter 1. However, there are plenty of people who have helped see that both of the accounts in Matthew and the accounts in Acts chapter 1 do not have to be exclusive from each other, but they could actually happen simultaneously at the same time. Different perspectives seeing a different part of the story. Here's what Chuck Swindoll writes about what happened with Judas. He said, in his fit of remorse, Judas cast the 30 pieces of silver onto the temple floor and then hanged himself in a remote field. No one found him until his body had decayed, become bloated, fallen from the noose, landed face down, burst open, and his organs had spilled onto the ground. I'm sorry, by the way, for that gruesome picture. This is Chuck writing, not me. The Greek word translated headlong doesn't have the meaning head first. In other Greek literature, Simply level, prostrate, or face down is the meaning of this word. Ancient people considered the gruesome scene the most shameful way to die and an unthinkable way for a body to decay. In the Jewish mind, a hanged man was accursed of God, and if the corpse was not buried the same day, the land was considered defiled. Moreover, Jews avoided cadavers and blood at all costs. This was cursed ground. The priest didn't want the money, and no one wanted the land, so the landowner was compensated for his loss, and the field reviled as the field of blood. Now, let me read you that because of this. A lot of people have opinions of whether or not what happened to Judas could be true if the stories are so different. But if you follow the timeline, especially scholarly timelines, you find that those things are not exclusive, but they're happening at the same time. In other words, the Bible knew what Judas would do. He did it as it was said, and the early church should have known what was going to take place because they had the Bible readily available to them every step of the way. This is also true for us. The point is their observance of the Word. I found something interesting, though. Peter also reminds them, I don't know if you caught this phrase, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, a lot of people read this phrase, and maybe you're thinking, Danny, here's what Peter meant. He meant that Judas did a lot of things with the early disciples, and he had a place in the ministry when Jesus was walking on the face of the earth. And I would tell you that is certainly the case. I do think that he shared in the ministry while Jesus was on the face of this planet. Matter of fact, one scholar wrote this. John Phillips, he wrote, He had been their friend. He had carried the bag, ministered to the poor, preached the gospel, healed the sick, cast out demons, seen countless miracles of Jesus, listened to his wonderful words of life, broken bread at the Lord's table, and he had been part of this ministry. His name might have been written in sparkling gems in the foundation stones of the celestial city. He might perhaps have had the ministry later entrusted to Paul. He had thrown it all away for 30 wretched silver coins. He clearly had a part in the ministry and threw it all away as he betrayed Jesus. But we read something recently that's interesting concerning what Peter talked about when he said his share in this ministry. It's about the coming kingdom that Luke writes about in chapter 22. Here's what Luke wrote. You are those, this is Jesus talking to the disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, if you read Matthew's account, in Matthew 19, he goes into greater detail, not just about the 12 tribes that will be judged, but the 12 thrones that the 12 disciples will sit on as they judge with Jesus the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, you say, Danny, why is this significant? This could be what Peter is thinking about in these moments in Acts. Judas was a part 
of Jesus' promise to share in this ministry. What ministry? The ministry of the twelve sitting on twelve thrones to judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, as Peter begins to count the apostles, I don't know if you realize this, but there was only eleven. Now imagine Peter's amazement. How would eleven share in this ministry if there was supposed to be twelve? Twelve tribes, twelve thrones, only eleven apostles. This number doesn't work. So guess what Peter does? He quotes again, verse 20, from the book of Psalms, from the mouth of David. He says, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Here's what Peter does. Peter uses the Bible. He quotes it, which we've already read from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, to justify his reasoning for selecting another apostle to take the place of Judas. As a matter of fact, just to give you greater details, Jesus quoted Psalm 69 in the Gospel of John. So do his disciples. Also, Paul quotes from this psalm in Romans in reference to Jesus. This psalm, specifically 69, in the early church and in later church history, was commonly known as a prophecy about Jesus. Now, I'm not as concerned with what Peter did as I am concerned about why he did it. You say, Danny, why are you giving us this history lesson? Well, one, I just thought it was interesting. Thought you might as well. Like when I'm reading these verses, here's what I was thinking. Like, why does it matter that there's 12 of them? And as a matter of fact, when they start selecting between Matthias and, and, and Barabbas or Barsabbas, I don't, we'll get there. I'm not there yet, but we'll get there. Like, why not just have both of them? They're both good. Well, I think it's because Peter's focusing back on what he knew Jesus taught. He's focusing back on what David had written years and years and years before. You say, Danny, why is this so significant? Because Peter is using the Word of God. He's observing that truth in order to know what he should do next. You say, okay, Danny, got it. Why is that a big deal for us? They were obedient in worship, and they were observant of the Word. Every decision Peter makes is based straight from what he knows from God's Word. Whether it was David who wrote it in the Old Testament, or it was Jesus who was speaking it from his own mouth in the days that he walked with him, everything he makes is based from the Bible. Is this how we make decisions? Do we base what happens in our lives today on what we know God's truth says about us? Do we? Are we like them? By the way, this is all preparation for what's about to happen with the early church. All of it. Their worship, their time in the Word, they would not be ready for what was about to come had they not been prepared by Jesus. Friends, listen to me. Neither will we be ready for what God wants to do in our lives, in this community, and throughout the world if we are not ready. All right, we got to hurry up. I'm sorry. Let me show you this third thing. i got four, but I'm going to go fast. Let me show you the third one, the obsession of the witness. I think this is fascinating, by the way. Verse 21, look at it. Acts 1, 21. It's all still happening in the same context, by the way. Jesus has ascended. They've went back to the upper room. They're praying. They're in the Word. Peter's proclaiming it. Now here they are trying to make a decision about what they're going to do to replace Judas. And it says in verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now Peter makes two claims, two criteria that the next apostle to replace Judas must meet. The first one's pretty simple. He has to have been a follower of Jesus from the beginning. Now you say, Danny, why is this so important? Well, it's important because the apostles' primary means of teaching and leading would be verbal and personal. 
I don't know if you know this, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it's not the New Testament that they're using to guide the early church. It's the apostles' teaching. They don't have the New Testament yet. God appointed apostles who had walked with Jesus to be the primary people to carry on the teachings that he taught him. If they were not with him from the beginning, how could they be trusted to teach what was right? New Testament comes around. Guess what? There's no need for the apostles after they die. Because when they died, the New Testament was in circulation. And they no longer had to use the apostles' teaching. Now they could use the Holy Word of God. Let me show you the second one, though. They had to be a follower of Jesus from the beginning. But also, they had to personally have interacted with the resurrected Jesus. They needed eyewitnesses to be trusted for the gospel to move forward. You say, Danny, why? The minimal standard of credibility in Roman culture was being able to testify in court. They could not testify if they were not a witness. Also, I don't know if you know this, but you'll see it as we continue to read through the New Testament, but there will be extreme pressure on the early church in the face of persecution and if they are not prepared if they don't know Jesus if they haven't seen the resurrected Lord will they be able to handle will they be able to handle the pressure that comes upon them there would be so many people who wanted more than just them to be silent they would want them to renounce Jesus all together and as a matter of fact in Acts chapter 4 verse 33 it keys us in on you know what was most impactful for people's lives being changed? It's when the apostles presented the resurrection of Jesus. And so Peter's like, here's the two things. Got to be a follower from the beginning. Got to have personally interacted with the resurrected Jesus. Now listen, you say, why is all this significant? Worship was their environment. The Word was their foundation. And their witness was the springboard to the advancement of the gospel. People needed Jesus no matter the cost. Will we be that type of witness to the world around us? You say, Danny, why are you talking about the obsession? Here's why. Peter was not leaving that upper room until they had completed the twelve. Why? Because they needed a perfect witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? So that we could be sitting in this room today talking about what Peter did in Acts chapter 1. Do you have that kind of passion, that kind of obsession with witnessing to the things of Jesus that they did in that upper room before the church was ever born? Last one. I'll get done. Number four, they're being prepared, right? We know what's coming in Acts 2. Holy Spirit's coming. Pentecost is happening. 3,000 people are getting saved. The revolution begins. The world is turned upside down. What does he need from his people? How is he preparing them for what's to come? Well, I'll tell you how he's preparing them. Through their obedience in worship. I'll tell you how he's preparing them. Through their observance of the word. I'll tell you how he's preparing them. Through their obsession to the witness of Jesus. I will tell you how he's preparing them. Through their obligation to his will. Nothing else matters. You know what I think would have happened for this early church? If Jesus would have said, I want all of you to get together in a chariot and ride off of this cliff, you know what I think they would have done? They would have got in a chariot and they would have said, Jesus, when do you want it to happen? Now, would he have done that? Of course not. But they were willing, no matter what, to accomplish the will of God. Look at this last thing, Acts 1, 23-26. Watch it. Here's how it wraps up. They're looking for some guys. Got to replace Judas. So they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, sorry I was way off, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to make this the place in this ministry and apostleship. Take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, it seems as though if there was more than two people qualified, we would hear about more than two of them. 
but we don't. So we assume these are the only two guys that are available. There's Joseph, who's called Bar-Sabbath, which means son of the Sabbath, also called Justice. Now, we don't know much about this guy, but here's what we do know. He had a whole lot of names. Some say that Bar-Sabbath is thought to be his Hebrew name. Justice is his Latin name. Whatever the case, there's Joseph. Then there's Matthias. Now, his name is a shortened version, probably, of the more common name, Mattathias. And you say, Danny, why is that significant? Well, it's really not, but there's this really interesting story that I want to tell you that has nothing to do with this, but I think it's cool. So I'm going to share it with you. There was an earlier Mattathias who was known by the Jews much more than Matthias as the disciple who was chosen to replace Judas. He was a heroic priest who sparked the Maccabean revolt that eventually led to Judea's independence. Now, this story comes from 1 Maccabees chapter 2, which, by the way, is an extra-biblical text that didn't make it into the canon, but it does have some historical accuracy. Now, to this day, Jews still celebrate this victory and God's provision. Does anybody know what it's called? It's called Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication. They said, Danny, why are you sharing that with us? I don't know. I just thought it was cool. Now, we don't know much about this guy either. All right, so we don't know much about Joseph. We don't know much about Matthias. All we know is this. This is from an early historian. His name was Eusebius. You don't really meet any Eusebiuses anymore. But anyway, early historian Eusebius wrote this. He claims that both of these guys, both Joseph and Matthias, were part of the 70 that Jesus sent out in the gospel. So it's clear that they were with Jesus from the beginning. Now, this moment gives us an idea of the leadership of the church before the Holy Spirit. Here's the leadership. They prayed and asked the Lord to show them who to choose. Now, you say, Danny, how's that so much different than now? It's really not. I don't know what God desires either. So guess what I have to do to seek out the will of the Lord? I have to ask Him and then listen to Him as he shows me what he wants next. Now, in their case, they did something pretty interesting. The phrase, who know the hearts of all, literally means the Lord is the heart knower. And we've seen this in other accounts in the Gospels when Jesus didn't give himself to people because he knew what was in man. They want God to show them exactly who he's already chosen to replace Judas so that they will line up with his will. So what do they do? They cast lots. Now, a lot of people have opinions about what it means to cast lots. The funniest thing from Baptist circles is to say they were gambling. Well, to be honest, it had nothing to do with gambling, so you can scratch that off of your list. Um, also, I'm not here to talk about gambling, but that's not what casting lots were. In the Old Testament, casting lots was a way of discovering God's will. Believing in the power of prayer and rejecting the notion of random chance, they would cast lots. Now, it's similar, sounds a little strange, to drawing straws or rolling dice. They believed God was directing the roll every single time. Now, don't think of this as chance. Think of this as providence. Think of this as they were trusting in God's sovereignty to direct the lots that were cast. Now, this is not an unknown procedure at this point in time in the early church. Now, we don't hear about it anymore because now the Holy Spirit comes and He's guiding every decision that they make. But before this moment, they were believing and trusting in the providence of God. The priests do this many different times when they needed to make decisions. Matter of fact, some of you may have heard from the Old Testament. You may have always wondered what it was. There were two little stones that the priests would always keep with them. They were called the, the Urim and the Thummim. I don't really know what those mean, but they would take those stones and they would use them to help determine what God's will was in a decision. Now, I'm not sure exactly how spiritual it was. As a matter of fact, if I was on death row and it was the Urim and Thummim that were deciding, I'd be a little nervous. But nonetheless, it was a normal thing for them. They would cast these lots. It was used by various leaders to determine God's direction. As a matter of fact, there's an entire story of Gideon, one of the judges, throwing out a fleece to discover God's will. This was a common practice for them. Now, I read about this. I thought it was interesting, only because you may wonder why casting lots is so weird. So I want to read it to you. This is from Chuck Swindoll. He writes this about the terminology. He said, It was a safe bet. In a manner of speaking, this method of discerning God's will may seem strange to us. 
Few mature Christians would consider making important decisions, especially church leadership decisions, by rolling dice. Although, be interesting to see what happens. But the apostles had already used their best sanctified reasoning to narrow down the candidates to just these two. So they were choosing between not right and wrong, but two rights. So don't miss this in the casting lots moment, by the way. They're not going, hey, should we kill this guy? Or hey, should he be free? Right? It's not that kind of decision. It's, hey, both of these are great. Now God, we're trusting you to make the decision. So all things being equal... The disciples trusted in the sovereignty of God, and the lot fell to Matthias, who became one of the twelve. Now, I want to share something interesting. I know, but this fascinates me. Some people do think, I don't know if I'm one of these people, so don't hold me to it. Some people think that the disciples jumped the gun here. Y'all know this expression, right? Peter, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, he's often known for speaking before he thinks. This is a common thing for Peter. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, even after forgiveness for his failings, even after he's going to be a big part of the birth of the church, he's still kind of an idiot, right? Like, even though Jesus saved me, I, I still got me here, right? So it's a problem. I deal with it every day. By the way, I got a mirror. I know what that looks like. You don't have to tell me. So some people think Peter, in his normal approach to life, may have jumped the gun here. Maybe Matthias... Or Joseph, neither one of them should have been the choice. They should have waited on the Holy Spirit. Because here's what a lot of scholars think. They believe the 12th apostle is another guy that we encounter in Acts. What's his name? Paul. And I say, Danny, which one is true? I don't know. Is Paul an apostle? Yeah, it's pretty apparent from Scripture as you read through the New Testament that he is. But one thing is different about Paul from these guys, at least from what we understand. We don't know that Paul was with Jesus from the very beginning, so he doesn't meet the criteria that Peter lays out. But it's an interesting, fascinating thought as people wrestle through the idea of who the actual 12th apostle was. Also, some people think Judas was forgiven, and he'll actually be the 12th apostle. So here's the interesting thing. One day, we're going to get to see the 12 apostles on the 12 thrones reigning over the 12 tribes of Israel with Jesus, and here's what we'll get to do. You'll get to remember back to this conversation. And you'll find me, and you'll say, Danny, it really was Matthias. No, I don't know. I don't know what's happening there. Now, at this point, I mean, let me put a bow on it. At this point, the early disciples are as ready as they can be for what comes next. Following God's will isn't always easy. Waiting on His timing isn't always easy. But He never promised us easy. You want to know what He promised us? Victory. Do you seek His will above your own? I love this quote. Though the place left vacant by Judas has been filled by Matthias, the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. But guess what we know? It's coming. Guess what we know? The world's going to be turned upside down. So what did they do until then? They did everything they could do and then waited on God to do everything He could do. Listen, you may think it goes from the resurrection to Pentecost. Don't miss the rest of the story. Before they got to the mountaintop, God was preparing them for the next move. Can I tell you something, friends? Maybe right now. God's preparing us for the next move. There's more to the story. Will we see it?